Now we come to the uh, end of our kind of uh, block in uh, Romans 9 to 11, uh, and it's been a pretty heavy-going block. So if you're, if you're here for the first time, uh, in a way, I don't really want to apologize because you never apologize for God's Word, but it is a more serious sort of section of God's Word. Uh, and it's not really a, a passage that's conducive to lots of storytelling and jokes. Uh, it's, a, it's not really a passage conducive to a lot of uh, Christian living either. But in a way, it goes to the heart of what we think about God uh, and whether we can trust Him. Uh, for in this uh, section that we've been looking at since Romans 9, two weeks ago, the big question that we've been confronted with is, can we really trust God to keep His promises to us? And that's a big question, isn't it? Can we really trust God to keep His promises to us? And over these last two chapters, in the last two weeks, and in chapter today, we, we see that Paul is answering this big question. But along the way, there's been other questions raised, hasn't it? And I've heard it uh, from you guys directly and from feedback from other people that there are other questions raised as we approach this part of God's Word. Even very uncomfortable questions. And we're not sure that we like the fact that God acts the way that He does. Some of us might even find it hard to accept the fact that God elects. What's all this election and choosing business? How does it even work that God is sovereign in election, He shows mercy to whom He has mercy on, and yet at the same time we are told that we're responsible, that we have to make choices, that our faith matters. Now during the week, one of my daughters happens to be reading Romans 9 in her quiet time as well. Uh, and obviously this is my oldest daughter, but she's only 12, right? not quite 12 yet. And she's reading Romans 9, and she's bombarding me with the same kind of questions that I've heard from you guys. Uh, and she's asking me questions, I'm giving her answers, and she's pushing me to explain more. And at the end of about 15, 20 minutes of this, she closes her Bible and says to Faith and I, I just don't get it. I don't want to think about it anymore. I'll think about it another time. Right? So I thought, mm, okay, we just leave it. Because uh, even for us, who've been Christians for 10, 20, 30 years, sometimes we feel the same way about the questions that are raised in this part of God's Word. We've certainly been in a very challenging part of God's Word these few weeks. And today we're going to look at the last answer, and I think a beautiful answer that caps off uh, how is it that we can trust in God's trustworthiness. Now, before I do that, I'm, uh, as many of you know, I've got gut issues, and I'm starting to feel something going wrong here. So someone can find me my milk, uh, and I've got some medication in my bag. My wife can know where that is. So, um, yeah. So I've been seeing home the last week, and I think it was going well, but today, no good. Okay, so we'll see whatever we can get through. Okay, so uh, tough sermon, tough gut issues. Everyone's just going, it's tough going today, okay? But it's going to be good, I reckon. At the end of it all, it's about really how we're going to... C- respond to God, especially for his character and his ways, right? How are we going to go do with that? Okay, thanks very much. It's got my name on it, Pastor Bin. So if you see that in the cupboard, don't take it. Cheers. Thanks. Whew. All right. That should kick in in about a minute, so... All right, wait a minute. Okay, so let's do a quick recap, okay? So not everyone's been here the last few weeks. Not everyone's been around for this whole series. So let's do a very quick recap on Romans. Now, Romans, first thing we need to know is it's written uh, to a, a largely Gentile church. 
Okay, Gentile means non-Jew. Okay, and that's pretty important as we get to this chapter, because this chapter is addressed to Gentiles, right, non-Jews. And right from the beginning, we see in chapters 1 to 8 uh, that Paul preaches the gospel, right? Uh, And at the end of chapter 8, after he preaches about the gospel of Jesus Christ and faith in him gives us justification, uh, we reach a crescendo, right? Chapter 8 is this great passage on assurance of salvation that we have in Christ because of God's grace, right? The assurance of God's love and eternal salvation was what chapter uh, 8 ends with. This is God's guarantee. This is God's unbreakable promise. But then comes the worry of chapters 9 to 11. Right? The mostly Gentile church knows the Jewish history. Right? They were supposed to be the people of God. They were the ones who received all these Old Testament promises that said they would be God's people. They would be saved. But the Gentiles also know that the Jews didn't make it. Right? As we've heard over the last few weeks. Uh, they didn't believe in Jesus. And the question that can be asked is, doesn't the failure of the Jews show that God is not trustworthy? After all, he made promises to them, and they didn't seem to receive the promises. So now that he makes promises to us, how can we be sure that God will be trustworthy? Now the past two chapters, in chapters 9 and 10, Paul has given us two clear answers, which I won't rehash. You can go and listen to those sermons online, or you can read those chapters for yourselves. And chapter 11 is what we're at today, and it's his third and final answer. And like I say, it's a good one. You see, the failure of the Jews does not show that God isn't trustworthy, right? It doesn't show that. In fact, uh, it's the opposite. The failure of the Jews shows that God is indeed trustworthy. But even more than that, it shows God's absolute faithfulness in showing mercy to both Jews and Gentiles. It's in his salvation plan to show mercy to both Jews and Gentiles that shows that even the past failures, the the rejection of the Jews, isn't because God isn't trustworthy. We'll see today that God keeps his promises despite our failures. We'll see that God shows mercy to those who are undeserving. We'll see that God does it in a way that humbles every single one of us, and God does it in a way that displays his wisdom that surpasses all human understanding. And the question that we'll be left with today is, will we humble ourselves and glorify God for who He is and how He works? Will we do that? Will we humble ourselves and glorify God for who He is and how He works? Or will we stand in judgment over God and say that, God, you can't do things your way? That's the question at the end of this sermon that we have to answer. As we go to chapter 11, we'll see that there's a more specific question that that Paul's addressing here, right? It's found in verse 1. Has God completely rejected the Jews? That's the big question of this chapter. Has God completely rejected uh, his people, the Jews? And Paul's answer is a straight, no way, Jose, right? It's it's, uh, by no means, right? It's a technical word, but no way is his answer, right? No, no, no. And he gives three reasons, right, in this uh, pretty long, pretty complex chapter for why God has not rejected his people. Uh, And in between, he brings in implications for the Gentile readers, which I'll put together at the end, okay? So we'll do the reasons first, and then we'll come around and look at the implications that Paul has for us Gentile readers. First reason, point 2a. Though the Jews are consistently rebellious, God has not completely rejected the Jews, right? God has 
always and will always have a remnant, right? A small amount, remaining members, right, in his people. Paul starts by pointing to himself. He says, hello, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, I'm Christian, I'm saved, and I'm a Jew, right? He, he is from, a, he's a descendant of Abraham, right? The, 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 the first Jew, so to speak. Uh, he's from the tribe of Benjamin, which is one of the two tribes that actually remain faithful to God in the Old Testament. And, and, and Paul is a believer, right? He's proof positive that not all Jews are rejected, which is pretty amazing when you think about Paul. For he was Saul, wasn't he? The last person you'd expect to be saved, to receive mercy because he was a persecutor of Christ and the church. And yet Paul says, look at me. God has saved me. Not all Jews have been rejected. And then Paul points to the Old Testament and he says, remember Elijah? Remember back in 1 Kings 19? Back when this guy Elijah, the prophet of God, assumed that there was not one single uh, believer left among God's people. They all bowed down to worship this idol called Baal. And then God told Elijah, as we see here in verse 4, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the idol Baal. Right? Even the Old Testament, even when Elijah assumed that everyone had turned against God, God said, no, I have kept for me 7,000 faithful Jews who still worship me and not worship idols. See, amidst the wholesale rejection of God, God keeps a faithful remnant. And Paul is saying, this is how God has always worked, and this is how God will always work. Now, the fact that there will always be a faithful remnant is completely because of God's grace. Right? It says much more about God. In fact, it says everything about God that there is a faithful remnant than it does about people. Because left to our own, whether Jew or Gentile, we will all turn away from God. Remember back to Romans chapter 3, the summary of chapter 1 to 3? Right? Chapter, one to, chapter 3, verse 18, uh, sorry, three, verse 10 to 12 says this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This was the summary of the human condition that we saw uh, eight chapters ago. I mean, it's not that we are sinful all the time and that we turn away from God all the time, but it's saying that humans there's just have no consistency. There's, there's no perfect faithfulness. There's no real desire to live as if God really was our God in every moment of time, to give Him the honor and thanks that He deserves at every moment as our Creator, as our King. It's only by God's grace that a faithful remnant is sustained. And then Paul explains this, right, in verse 7 to 10, about why is it that the Jews rejected God? It wasn't because God wasn't faithful. It's because the Jews were the ones who made the choice to turn away from God. Now, verse 7 to 10 is uh, simply a reminder of the last two chapters. It's this mixture of um, Jewish rejection, because they did not seek after God's righteousness the way they ought to. They did it by works rather than by faith, and so they didn't receive what they sought. But there's an additional kind of reminder here that in response to this rejection, God hardens their hearts, right? God judges their rejection by handing them over to their choices. And once again, we're reminded back to Romans 1, right, where God hands Gentile sinners over to their sins 
so also he hands Jewish rejections to their rejection. And so we see here this quite in-your-face kind of statement. God places stupor in the hearts of the stupid. He closes eyes that have already been shut. He shuts ears that have already closed off to God, who have already tuned out from God. And we're reminded again and again that God never makes anyone reject him, but he does judge those who do reject him. But more than that, God graciously works in the heart of some to bring them to faith and so be saved. God works in the heart of some to bring them to faith and be saved. This is the first reason, right? There is, there is not a total rejection because there's always a faithful remnant by God's grace. The second reason we see in this passage is that the present rejection of the Jews is partial, uh, which God is using to bring salvation to the Gentiles. Now, this is a point that reveals to us the mystery of God's salvation plan worked out in human history. Right, we see this in verse 11. So chapter 11, verse 11. So I ask, did they, the Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Have a look at verse 15. The Jewish rejection means the reconciliation of the rest of the world. Then in verse 25, there's a great summary, verse 25, of what's going on here. Uh, Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. This is the Gentile brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Right? See, Israel's stumbling is not total or final, right? It's partial and temporary. They have stumbled over Christ for now, right, in the first century. Uh, But they have not fallen in some kind of irretrievable way. Right? We're being given an insight into God's sovereign plan, where the, the present Jewish rejection is a way to bring the gospel into the entire world, into the Gentile world. Now, if you know your testament, you know there's always God's plan to save the nations, right? Famous verses you probably should memorize in Genesis. Uh, When he spoke to Abraham, the first forefather, uh, he said, I will uh, bless those who bless you, uh, and in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, through you, Abraham, and your family, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, right? God's plan from the beginning was to bring salvation to the nations, to the world, But we see that God does it through first the nation Israel and then to the world. And we see this in Acts, isn't it? That the gospel first went out to the Jews, but when the Jews rejected, then the gospel went out to the Gentiles. So remember back in Acts last year, we did this sermon series? Acts 13, uh, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying... It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Right? They were supposed to be a light to the nations. But at the end of the day, God still fulfills his plan that through their rejection, the gospel goes out to the Gentiles. Now stop and think about that for a moment, right? God is sovereign in human history to fulfill his eternal purposes and plans. 
right? When you read your history books and you think about the entirety of human history, God is so sovereign and so powerful that He can work through the everyday workings of every person in every place in our human history to fulfill His plans and purposes. Now, when we study our history books and we think about our own history, whether that's 10, 20, 30, or 80 years, uh, we can honestly say that we are not some kind of puppet being messed around by a puppeteer. We're not simply robots, right, mechanically going through life under the control of some power. We can't say that, right? We know that we make choices, right? We, we know we're not just pawns being helplessly moved about. We all make decisions every day. Humanity has always made decisions every single day. We are human and we make choices, real choices. And the world, it is the way it is because of the choices that humanity has made, right? But, but we have also come to know through the revelation of God's word, through his divine, miraculous interventions, especially in revealing himself through his son, that God is sovereign, that God is in control. Those truths are both true. And that's what we've been trying to see these last few chapters. God works sovereignly through the rejection, the real choices of the Jews to bring salvation to the Gentiles. That's an amazing thing to realize about God. Now, Paul said this right at the beginning uh, in our summary verse of Romans 1. Right? Many of you still remember it, hopefully. Uh, the kind of catchphrase for the entire book is, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Now, the Greek is just uh, another way of exp- talking about Gentiles, right? They're the kind of sophisticated Gentiles. You see, Gentile salvation was always God's plan, but it's not the end of the salvation story. Look back again at verse 11 in chapter 11, right? Chapter 11, verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Right, this is for the Jews. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. You see, we're not finished with God's plans yet in human history. For just as the Jewish rejection serves the Gentile salvation, so the Gentile salvation will do something to the Jews to make them jealous in a good way for them to come back, put their faith in God. And so we get to our third answer, our third answer, right? Uh, No, the Jews have not been completely rejected uh, because despite Jewish rejection, God will still mercifully save the full number of Jews and Gentiles that he intends. Right? He will save the full number of Jews and Gentiles that he intends. Now let me read out a few verses for you in this chapter. And the specifics can sound confusing, but the main point I feel is pretty clear. Okay? So look at me at verse 12. Uh, look at verse 12. Right? Now, if the Jews trespass means riches for the world... And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Verse 15. For if the Jews' rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Then again, verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. 
a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, if you noticed in these few passages, these few verses, the emphasis on the word fullness. Can you see that? The emphasis on the word fullness. Paul looks forward to a glorious future of the fullness of riches, the fullness of inclusion, the fullness of eternal resurrected life. Right? Fullness. It is the fullness of all of God's chosen people enjoying the fullness of God and the fullness of life that God created and saves us for. Now the question is, who makes up that fullness, right? So what, what, what the, the, the big debate in this passage is who makes up this fullness? Uh, what does verse 26 mean when it says, all Israel will be saved? Now it feels like there's a gale force of freezing cold air blowing on my head here, so maybe we can turn this one off. I think it's cool enough, is that right? Vanessa looked like she's about to be an icicle. So let's turn this one off. Okay. Whew. All right. It's freezing in my brains. Okay, where am I up to? <laughs> okay, yeah. So what does 26 mean when it says all Israel will be saved? Now, this uh, is a very controversial verse. Uh, it could mean right, the mass conversion of Israel right, or Jews. Or it could mean, I will just let uh, the aircon. Yeah, that's not God's word there. Don't worry about that. Right? Come over here. Come back. Come back, brothers. Okay. okay. It could mean the mass conversion of Jews, right? In some future date, that God will miraculously and suddenly bring in all the Jews. So all Israel as a nation is saved. Or it could mean Israel as the remnant of verse 5, right? The remnant that God always intends to save. An idea which began back in chapter 9, verse 6. If you go back to chapter 9, verse 6, remember the beginning of this section? Paul says that not all Israel, not, not, not all national Israel is truly Israel. They're truly the people of God. Those are the two main uh, options we have, right? Now, I don't think uh, you can really tell for sure uh, from this passage. It's a bit, that's why there's so much debate and there are books written about this. But I, I lean more towards uh, the second view, right? That it's talking about true Israel. Right, the, the remnant that, that, that makes up all Israel. It doesn't really matter. Uh, but I think it matters to some Christians out there, as you know. And some Christians and some nations actually form national and international policy based on the teachings in this chapter, which I think is uh, probably not a best idea. Because the main point from this passage, what matters most is that God has a full number of Gentiles and Jews that he will save. He never tells us how many. He just says that all that he wants to save, the fullness of his people, of Jews and Gentiles, he will save. That he has worked in human history to bring in Gentiles through the rejection of the Jews, and he will work in human history in the future to bring in the full number of Jews that God intends to save. The point here is of God's control and sovereignty in salvation, right? How? The specifics, we don't know. All we need to know is that God is faithful and trustworthy to fulfill his promises to both Jews and Gentiles. Now, I think that covers pretty much the salvation history, the theology of this chapter, 
Right? There's a lot of details that we don't need to go into, but I think that clearly covers it, those three answers that Paul gives. But like I said, along the way, he gives us, especially us Gentile readers, some strong implications, some strong things to consider and to respond to God with. And the first is to do with humility. First clear instruction in this passage is to be humbled. God's salvation plan humbles every single one of us. It should humble us. Now, if I'm not mistaken, every single person in this room is a Gentile, right? Uh, I'm pretty sure you're not Jews. No Jews here. Okay, if you're just a Jew here, I don't know about. Uh, God humbles you too, right? It's not just the Gentiles he's trying to humble in this passage. It's the Jews as well, as we'll see. The gospel came to the Jews first. It's clear, right? Came to the Jews first, then to the Gentiles. And Paul says in verse 17, have a look at verse 17. But if some of the branches, right, the Jewish branches, were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, that's you Gentiles, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the same nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. You see, the Jews were the original people of God. They were the roots, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They were the trunk. And they were the branches of God's tree. That is God's salvation plan at the beginning, right? It began with them. We Gentiles, on the other hand, weren't part of this tree. We were the wild olive shoot, right? Growing somewhere else outside of God's tree, right? In some other part of the field in this metaphor. We were those who had to be grafted in. We are like children who are adopted. Right? We're not the natural born. We are adopted in. Adopted children do not get to be arrogant and proud against their brothers and sisters who are natural born. That's why Paul is saying, we, if we know our position as those grafted in from the outside, those adopted in from the outside, how can we be arrogant and proud against those who were originally there? even if they have gone wayward and gone astray. How can we be arrogant against them? Now, not many of us have Jewish friends that we are tempted to be arrogant against. Who has ever experienced feeling arrogant against a Jew? It's probably not the experience that we face in our day-to-day lives. We generally don't think about them too much, except to maybe feel sorry for them that it's a mess, right, in Palestine. But I think this uh, kind of attitude of humility should come across in every aspect of our life as Christians, not just against the Jews, but against other Christians as well. You see, some of us may become arrogant in our salvation over time. And this seems to be a struggle as we become more mature in the faith, as we are longer in the faith. We can start to take for granted how undeserving we are to be saved by God. We can become smug in our faith, looking down on those who we deem to be weak in faith. We can be smug against those who walk away from the faith. Now, I used to be in YF as a member, uh, back when YF was mainly a migrant group. Uh, as many of you have heard, you know, someone like, people like Ruten and Amanda and Dan were my leaders when I was a 12-year-old wee little kid. And uh, there was about maybe 50, 60 of us uh, at the peak in the 90s. 
And I would say that about half of my wife, brothers and sisters, are no longer walking with God. Either uh, they fully rejected, or they just don't think about it anymore. And when I think about my friends, and I still see them on Facebook sometimes, there is a big deal of sadness right, in my heart as I think about the path that they've taken over the last 20 over years. And there is sadness there for sure. At the same time, I know that in my heart there's a part of me which shakes my head at them, right? And sort of goes, tsk, tsk. You know, tsk, tsk? It's like, how could you guys do that? You know, like, how could you guys, you know, reject God who loves you so much? How could you once believe in the power of the gospel and then now suddenly live by the power of your own strength? How could you be so easily swayed by the temptations of this world and by your own sin? Now, maybe I won't exactly articulate it like that in my heart, in my mind, but there is that sense of self-righteousness that can develop in us who are maturing in the faith and have been faith in a long time, isn't it? We who think we are faithful and going strong can be in danger of being arrogant to those around us who don't believe and who are struggling. So let's not do that. There's a reason why there is so many times the Word of God instructs us to be humble people. For those who have been shown mercy, how can you not be humble? How can you ever be proud of your salvation when there's nothing that you and I have done to earn or deserve it? So we Gentiles, be humble. But Paul here also says, well, the Jews need to be humble too. Right? The Jews may have been the original uh, salvation through Christ was offered to them first. The Messiah was from the Jewish nation, but they rejected the gospel. And they need the salvation to be brought to the Gentiles for them to realize what they're missing out for them to be saved. They are humbled too. So both Jews and Gentiles, we're both humbled. Now, when it comes to salvation, there is no place for pride because Jew and Gentile alike stand or fall on the basis of faith, right? This is the second point here, isn't it? second implication is faith. Keep standing firm in faith because that is the only basis by which we are made right with God and receive His salvation. We've heard over and over again in Romans that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Faith is an utter dependence on God. In Jesus Christ, His Son, to save us. Not by our birthright, not by our works. Verse 19. Chapter 11, verse 19. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So don't become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness towards you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. The Jews were cut off because they did not believe in God's Savior. And there's a warning here, right, for us to be responsible to keep standing firm in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For what happened to the Jews can happen to us too if we turn our backs on God. And so Paul continues, right? He said, don't be smug in your faith. Don't be like the Jews and assume that you are born into a Christian family and so you're naturally saved. 
Don't assume that just because you've been coming to church all your life that you're going to be all right with God, as if just attending something shows that you are faithful to God. Don't be complacent, thinking that you once said the sinner's prayer, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, and that means you're all good now. Don't make daily compromises that lead you further and further away from a wholehearted and growing trust in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The rejection of the faithless Jews ought to motivate us to keep standing firm in our faith. And once again, it's a reminder to take responsibility for our choices. So you see, we keep bouncing back, isn't it, between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. But we're really going to end with God's responsibility, God's choice, God's sovereignty here in our last two points. You see, that any of us can be saved at all is one of the biggest lessons we need to learn. Not just in this chapter, not just in chapter 9 to 11 of Romans, but the entire book of Romans, entire scriptures, is to come to this realization, deeper and deeper realization, an understanding of how we are desperately in need of God's mercy. Now, one of the biggest reasons I think we struggle to receive the teaching of God's election is because we don't really believe that humanity is that bad. Right? We're not really that sinful. Right? We, we, we don't really deserve God's judgment. It's what a lot of us kind of think on the inside. Look at verse 30. Chapter 11, verse 30. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Who's disobedient? Gentiles and Jews. Right? All have been judged to be disobedient. Romans 1 verse 18 to 320 was devoted entirely to proving that every single Gentile and every single Jew is disobedient, is dishonoring and living in denial of God. Remember, there is no one righteous, not even one. We'll keep on saying that because it's true and we need to come to terms with that. That God has consigned all to disobedience. He has determined, he has judged all of us to be sinners deserving of his righteous wrath and condemnation. No one likes hearing that. And many churches stop preaching that. But unless we hear that and understand it and believe it, we will never understand our need for mercy. It will never marvel at the fact that God gives it. God isn't playing a game here, right? God doesn't enjoy judging us, but He takes our sinful choices, our rejection of Him very seriously. He is the holy God. And we expect him to be righteous and just in his judgment, and he does. And it just so happens that we deserve his condemnation. And the only hope for us guilty, condemned people is mercy. That is the only hope that we have. For mercy is to not receive the punishment that we deserve. Right? It's not about whether we deserve to receive mercy. It's whether we will have the privilege and the surprise of getting mercy when we know we deserve judgment. Mercy is not a right. It is a gift. It is to receive something we don't deserve. To receive mercy should be a total surprise because that you know 
that by right, by the letter of the law, by the standard of everything that is righteous and good, you deserve to be judged by God. And so when you hear the news that you receive mercy, you should be surprised. You shouldn't be judging God and saying, how come someone else didn't? You know? We can so easily presume on God's mercy. We can even demand it. And we can blame God for not giving it. But how can that be so? All you and I can and should do is to marvel at the fact that God chose some out of this thoroughly sinful, broken, and rebellious lot to show mercy to. And all that you and I can and should do is to respond like Paul does. Have a look at verse 33. What an amazing way to finish off this section. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. And at this point, as Paul is writing this, you can imagine him falling on his knees. Feeling chills, maybe even. He wasn't writing the word, oh, just to be a, you know, a rhetorical flourish. This is a, a, a heartfelt, guttural response of a man who knows his place before God. You see, having preached the gospel in Romans 1-8, to having reflected on our utter human sinfulness, and, and telling us of God's salvation plan, perfect plan through His Son, having, having expounded on, on the assurance and the blessings of being in Christ, and then having explained God's trustworthiness and mercy in Romans 9-11, to revealing God's plan, wise plan, to save both Gentiles and Jews, and showing how wise and sovereign God's plans and purposes are, he can't help but fall to his knees to give God all praise and glory. You are God, and I am not. That's what he's saying, isn't it? You are God. You are inscrutable. Who can judge you? Now, the amazing thing is that God gives us the answers that we ask. Not complete answers, but enough for us to know what he's trying to do in some way. But at the end of the day, God is not answerable to us. The Creator is not answerable to His creation. The holy, divine, sovereign God is not answerable to rebellious, ungodly, thankless sinners like you and I. And yet He pours out His mercy, yet He reveals His truth to us. God is God. You and I are not. How do you respond to that? How do you respond to that statement? How does your heart respond to that statement? How willing are you to accept this truth? God is God. You and I are not. When I say that phrase, does it leave a bitter taste in your mouth? Or does it fill your heart with joy? What happens when I say God is God and you are not? Some of us find it so hard to glorify God's wisdom because we don't agree with it. We find it hard to glorify God and His wisdom because we don't agree with it. Right? We question the way 
the right that God has to act the way he does. We can't accept that God judges humanity. All we want is for God to be this fluffy, heavenly daddy that pours out his love without distinction. And we're not happy that he shows mercy to some and not others. And we question God's salvation plan. Why Jews first and Gentiles? Why does it take Gentile conversion before the Jews will come back? Like I said, God has given us so many answers. Lovingly and kindly, God has given us insight into his purposes and plans. But at the end of the day, he's not answerable to us. We're answerable to him. So the question really is, will we marvel and worship? Will we humble ourselves under God? Will we, having come to know the creator of this world, the author of our salvation, having understood the gospel of God's grace, will we fall on our knees in humility and in worship? Will we open our mouths to call out to God in faith and to fill our lips with praise? Let me pray that that's what we will do. Heavenly Father, in the past few weeks, in these few chapters of your word, we have been confronted with the reality that you are God in all of your sovereign almightiness, with your right to judge and to act, to save and to show mercy in the way that you do. And we thank you so much that in your kindness and your grace, you reveal to us how all these things work in ways that we can understand, in the ways that our sinful, finite minds can understand. We thank you that you do give us the answers that we seek. But help us to realize that at the end of the day, you are not answerable to us, but that we are answerable to you. That when we think about the fact that you are God and we are not, it would fill us with worship. It would fill us with marvel and awe. It would fill us with faith and praise. Not to stand over you in judgment. Not to keep questioning you like a cynic and and to turn away from you in disgust, but to turn towards you and to see that you are our only hope, you are our only life. As sinful, rebellious humans, we find this hard, and so we pray for your spirit to be powerfully at work in us, to be able to receive your word, to receive your truth. For in your word and by your truth we have life, life to the full. Please help us to receive the life that you want for us through your word. We pray it in Jesus' name.